Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton Part 2 On the Man Called Christ Chapter 3 The Strangest Story in the World Part 3 Every attempt to amplify that story has diminished it. The task has been attempted by many men of real genius and eloquence, as well as by only too many vulgar sentimentalists and self-conscious rhetoricians. The tale has been retold with patronizing pathos by elegant skeptics and with fluent enthusiasm by boisterous bestsellers. It will not be retold here. The grinding power of the plain words of the gospel story is like the power of millstones, and those who can read them simply enough will feel as if rocks had been rolled upon them. Criticism is only words about words. And of what use are words about such words as these? What is the use of word-painting about the dark garden filled suddenly with torchlight and furious faces? Are you come out with swords and staves as against a robber? All day I sat in your temple teaching, and you took me not. Can anything be added to the massive and gathered restraint of that irony? like a great wave lifted to the sky and refusing to fall. Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. As the high priest asked what further need he had of witnesses, we might well ask what further need we have of words. Peter, in a panic, repudiated him, and immediately the cock crew, and Jesus looked upon Peter, and Peter went out and wept bitterly. Has anyone any further remarks to offer? Just before the murder, he prayed for all the murderous race of men, saying, They know not what they do. Is there anything to say to that, except that we know as little what we say? Is there any need to repeat and spin out the story of how the tragedy trailed up the Via Dolorosa, and how they threw him in haphazard with two thieves in one of the ordinary batches of execution, and how in all that horror and howling wilderness of desertion, one voice spoke in homage, a startling voice from the very last place where it was looked for, for the gibbet of the criminal. And he said to that nameless ruffian, This night shalt thou be with me in paradise. Is there anything to put after that but a full stop? Or is anyone prepared to answer adequately that farewell gesture to all flesh which created for his mother a new son? It is more within my powers, and here more immediately to my purpose, to point out that in that scene were symbolically gathered all the human forces that have been vaguely sketched in this story. As kings and philosophers and the popular element, had been symbolically present at his birth, so they were more practically concerned in his death. And with that we come face to face with the essential fact to be realized. All the great groups that stood about the cross represent in one way or another the great historical truth of the time, that the world could not save itself. Man could do no more. Rome and Jerusalem and Athens 
and everything else were going down like a sea turned into a slow cataract. Externally, indeed, the ancient world was still at its strongest. It is always at that moment that the inmost weakness begins. But in order to understand that weakness, we must repeat what has been said more than once. That it was not the weakness of a thing originally weak. It was, emphatically, the strength of the world that was turned to weakness, and the wisdom of the world that was turned to folly. In this story of Good Friday, it is the best things in the world that are at their worst. That is what really shows us the world at its worst. It was, for instance, the priests of a true monotheism and the soldiers of an international civilization. Rome, the legend, founded upon fallen Troy and triumphant over fallen Carthage, had stood for a heroism which was the nearest that any pagan ever came to chivalry. Rome had defended the household gods and the human decencies against the ogres of Africa and the hermaphrodite monstrosities of Greece. But in the lightning flash of this incident, we see great Rome, the imperial republic going downward under her Lucretian doom. Skepticism has eaten away, even the confident sanity of the conquerors of the world. He who is enthroned to say what is justice, and can only ask, what is truth? So, in that drama which decided the whole fate of antiquity, one of the central figures is fixed in what seems the reverse of his true role. Rome was almost another name for responsibility. Yet he stands forever as a sort of rocking statue of the irresponsible. Man could do no more. Even the practical had become the impracticable. Standing between the pillars of his own judgment seat, a Roman had washed his hands of the world. There, too, were the priests of that pure and original truth that was behind all the mythologies, like the sky behind the clouds. It was the most important truth in the world, and even that could not save the world. Perhaps there is something overpowering in pure personal theism, like seeing the sun and moon and sky come together to form one staring face. Perhaps the truth is too tremendous when not broken by some intermediaries, divine or human. Perhaps it is merely too pure and far away. There were philosophers who held it in its highest and noblest form, but they not only could not convert the world, but they never tried. You could no more fight the jungle of popular mythology with a private opinion than you could clear away a forest with a pocket knife. The Jewish priests had guarded it jealously in the good and the bad sense. They had kept it as a gigantic secret. As savage heroes might have kept the sun in a box, they kept the everlasting in the tabernacle. They were proud that they alone could look upon the blinding sky of a single deity, and they did not know that they had themselves gone blind. Since that day their representatives have been like blind men in broad daylight, striking to right and left with their staffs, and cursing the darkness. But there has been that in their monumental monotheism, that it has at least remained like a monument, the last thing of its kind, and in a sense motionless in the more restless world which it cannot satisfy. For it is certain that for some reason it cannot satisfy. Since that day, 
it has never been quite enough to say that God is in his heaven, and all is right with the world, since the rumor that God had left his heavens to set it right. And as it was with these powers that were good, or at least had once been good, so it was with the element which was perhaps the best, or which Christ himself seems certainly to have felt as the best. The poor to whom he preached the good news, the common people who heard him gladly, the populace that had made so many popular heroes and demigods in the old pagan world, showed also the weaknesses that were dissolving the world. They suffered the evils often seen in the mob of the city, and especially the mob of the capital, during the decline of a society. The same thing that makes the rural population live on tradition makes the urban population live on rumor. Just as its myths, at the best, had been irrational, so its likes and dislikes are easily changed by baseless assertion that is arbitrary and without being authoritative. Some brigand or other was artificially turned into a picturesque and popular figure and run as a kind of candidate against Christ. In all this we recognize the urban population that we know, with its newspaper scares and scoops. But there was present in this ancient population an evil more peculiar to the ancient world. We have noted it already as the neglect of the individual, even of the individual voting the condemnation, and still more of the individual condemned. It was the soul of the hive, a heathen thing. The cry of this spirit was also heard in that hour. It is well that one man die for the people. Yet this spirit in antiquity of devotion to the city and to the state had also been in itself and in its time a noble spirit. It had its poets and its martyrs, men still to be honored forever. It was failing through its weakness in not seeing the separate soul of a man, the shrine of all mysticism. But it was only failing as everything else was failing. The mob went along with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the philosophers and the moralists. It went along with the imperial magistrates and the sacred priests, the scribes and the soldiers, that the one universal human spirit might suffer a universal condemnation, that there might be one deep, unanimous chorus of approval and harmony when man was rejected of men. There were solitudes beyond, where none shall follow. There were secrets in the inmost and invisible part of that drama that have no symbol in speech, or in any severance of a man from men. Nor is it easy for any words less stark and single-minded than those of the naked narrative even to hint at the horror of exaltation that lifted itself above the hill. Endless expositions have not come to the end of it, or even to the beginning. And if there be any sound that can produce a silence, we may surely be silent about the end and the extremity. When a cry was driven out of that darkness in words dreadfully distinct and dreadfully unintelligible, which man shall never understand in all the eternity they have purchased for him, and for one annihilating instant an abyss that is not for our thoughts had opened even in the unity of the Absolute. And God 
had been forsaken of God. They took the body down from the cross, and one of the few rich men among the first Christians obtained permission to bury it in a rock tomb in his garden, the Romans setting a military guard, lest there should be some riot and attempt to recover the body. There was, once more, a natural symbolism in these natural proceedings. It was well that the tomb should be sealed with all the secrecy of ancient eastern sepulture and guarded by the authority of the Caesars. For in that second cavern, the whole of that great and glorious humanity which we call antiquity was gathered up and covered over, and in that place it was buried. It was the end of a very great thing called human history, the history that was merely human. The mythologies and the philosophies were buried there, the gods and the heroes and the sages. In the great Roman phrase, they had lived. But as they could only live, so they could only die, and they were dead. On the third day, the friends of Christ coming at daybreak to the place found the grave empty, and the stone rolled away. In varying ways, they realized the new wonder. But even they hardly realized that the world had died in the night. What they were looking at was the first day of a new creation, with a new heaven and a new earth. And in a semblance of the gardener, God walked again in the garden, in the cool not of the evening, but the dawn. Tis the gift to be simple, tis the gift to be free, tis the gift to come down where we ought to be, and when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>